Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. The Ringer is launching a new podcast from the guys who brought you a Cespedes family barbecue called Baseball Barbecue. Hosted by Jake Mintz and Jordan Schusterman, they're bringing you the good, the bad, and the utterly bizarre corners of the baseball world and everything that makes it special. Throughout the offseason, they'll dive into the rabbit hole on some of their favorite fascinations from the home run derby to baseball brawls and much more. Once the season returns, they'll break down the latest MLB news and developments. You can subscribe to Baseball Barbecue on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome everybody to Behind the Billions. I'm Brian Koppelman and I'm David Levine. Hey, let's get into this, Dave. It's been fun for me seeing people react to these episodes online uh, and comment all week long on this, hasn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, this week's episode is a really fun one. So happy to talk about it with you. Me too. We, we, we got a lot of stuff in this episode that we've been wanting to get in a while. And we got the great Ben Mesrick, who uh, is coming up at the end of this podcast. Uh, we were thrilled to get Ben to be... Um, uh, a part of the writer's room for Billions for season five. We both have been, each of us have been a huge fan of his work for a yeah. long time. And, I mean, he's written um, such impactful books, The Accidental Billionaires about, about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg that became the seminal movie, The Social Network. Then Bringing Down the House about the blackjack team that went and wreaked havoc in Vegas that became the movie 21. Most recently, Bitcoin Billionaires, where he goes back into the story trenches with uh, the Winklevoss twins. I mean, when this guy writes a book, it it becomes a cultural touchstone. It's amazing. And so, yeah, he'll be on at the end of the podcast to talk about what it felt like to join a writer's room and to uh, write this episode of of television. And um, so, Dave, let's start with uh, let's should we anything general you want to say about the episode before we dive into the characters. I mean, I do think it was something, this whole idea of a boarding school has been something you and I have talked about, and and, um, dealing with the headmaster of boarding school. That's something you and I have been talking about for years. Well, you know, it's such a fascinating paradigm where you have these institutions run by these men of principle whose jobs are to uphold these principles, to impart them on younger generations. But they're also in charge of like stewarding these endowments and raising money. And there's just this fulcrum point where, where the, the monetary part meets the idealism that sets up so interestingly. And you know, it really came through thematically in this episode, not just in the boarding school storyline, but the way the the uh, Chuck Sr. donations to Yale functioned as far as what Chuck wanted to accomplish up there. You know, it's just a really interesting ground. Well, and, I uh, think Billions is always concerned. I, I think Billions is always concerned with the way people institutions hold themselves out uh, as moral standard bearers versus in actuality, the grimy way in which they have to, um, do the business that keeps them able to function. And, uh, and I think both of us look at all of these hallowed halls with a bit of a jaundiced eye from stuff we witnessed growing up on Long Island, basically, as we would watch people, try to scam into either private schools or colleges or 
work various systems, not just educational systems, but various systems. And I think we've noticed the way that people of great power, you know, Dave, you want to, without naming names, you want to just tell that story um, that one billionaire told us this year? Because whenever people wonder about how much of this shit comes from the real, the one billionaire told us that story about uh, influencing the educational system. Yeah, somebody somebody was uh, talking to us about their life experience. And I think we asked them a question about getting revenge, like had they ever gotten revenge or done something like right out of our show. And the person said they had, they they told us about a a loss that they had taken at the hands of a rival. And I guess he said that he couldn't go after the person because the person was too big. It was like somebody of equal An size. An equal even, size billionaire yeah, or something. More yeah. wealthy or somebody who had a huge company that was sort of impregnable. And the guy couldn't go after the person and hurt him in business. So he just sort of laid back and bided his time. And I think years went by, maybe like three years went by. And he found out that that rival's kid was getting ready to go to college to a very esteemed institution, you know, one of the ones in the top, top, top level of the Ivy Leagues extended. And yeah, when this when this guy heard, he made a call to somebody on the board or the president of the board of the university. And he said, you know, um, I had a problem with this kid's parent and, and this kid can't come to the school. And the board member who had been the recipient of however many millions in donations immediately folded and was like, you're absolutely right. This person won't be getting in. And this poor kid who, well, not a poor kid, I guess a wealthy kid, but a kid who was an innocent in this whole thing got denied their dream. They didn't get to go to this school. They'd worked hard to be and qualified so it's a huge, for. And, and of course, it's a huge indictment of the billionaires. In that moment, you could see this as a huge indictment of the billionaire. But you have to also see it as a huge indictment of the edu- educational institution itself. If if this kid otherwise deserved to go, but they're not going to let the kid in because another rich guy's got a problem with it, it just puts the whole thing into question. And so uh, I think it it makes sense to sort of uh, for us to address it in, in that way. Um, and I would also say, David, we've been fascinated by this uh, ever since we read. It. I just wanted to shout out Ethan Kanan's book, The Palace Thief. I don't think the movie is very good. But if anyone loves stories, they should read The Palace Thief because all four stories in it are incredible. But the story, uh, I think you and I were really influenced in the way we looked at politicians and wealthy people by reading that book as young as young guys. Don't you think? Yeah, that was an amazing book. And, it, you know, it really, it really stuck with me as a story when, when somebody saw behind that curtain for the first time and saw that they're really all this integrity and honor that was talked about was, was, um, complete hypocrisy. It it was certainly, even if people believed it in the moment, they were certainly willing to waive it if they had to for, for, for power. Um, all right, let's, let's, let's dive into some of these categories that we have. Yeah. Script to screen, Brian. I, I I have no recollection of what changed in this one. So yeah, the only, the only thing that changed really, I mean, there was, um, the original script had three scenes that we then took out after the table read because they, at the table read, we saw that it was going to be hard to actually put them in the finished show. And so we had to take what was a three scene run and change it into with a bunch of different people and just 
uh, grind it down into a smaller thing. I don't even want to say what that specifically was um, in case the actors themselves hardly remember. I don't want to bring it up again, but we did sort of trim something. And um, and then the other thing that might be interesting for anyone listening to this who's a is a writer or is a filmmaker or wants to be one is sometimes when we write these scripts, and this episode is a good example of it, when we write these scripts, we will put... Um, a Chuck scene, an act scene, a Wendy scene, we, a Taylor scene, we'll sometimes, what we call checkerboarding them, where we'll go one to the other, to the other, to the other, kind of bouncing around. And I think the original script of this was much the same. And then often when we get into the editing stage, we'll end up realizing it plays better by stringing a bunch of it together. And I think this is one of those episodes where we decided to keep certain of the scenes, um, where, the character's where we journey- would- stay at the boarding school for a series of scenes where in the script you're saying we would cut away to different locations, different stories. Yeah. We're, and I think the main lesson to take from that is just being open in the editing room to find, in, instead of looking back and saying, we definitely did it this way in the script. I think you and I have gotten good over the course of making the show at being very open in the editing room to, well, what's the best way to put these stories in an order where the whole thing will accumulate energy and power as it's going. Yeah, and I think the reverse can happen occasionally too, where where we've strung a storyline together and it plays out like A, B, C, D, and we realize it'll get more interesting if it hangs over more of the episode and we go away from it for a while. Totally. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, Completely agree. Uh, All right, I think when we talk to Mezzi, I think the story within the story... Uh, do you have any specifics on story within a story? I don't have that many beyond just, you know. Um, you know, one thing that, you know, we'll we'll talk all about um, the boarding school stuff and the crypto stuff with Mezzi and, and, you know, amongst ourselves. But one thing that I, I definitely don't want to miss, which somehow runs in relation to this, it's not exactly the same, but um, this idea of this um, pre-show before the art show thing that oh, we do yeah, with, yeah. where, where Axe and Wags, you know, get special entrance to the gallery and get to see the paintings to, uh, make a move on them before anybody else has seen them. And, you know, in the case of this episode, Mike Prince has actually gotten a pre pre-show, but, you know, we'd heard about certain, um, certain wealthy collectors getting a chance to show up at Art Basel or, or places like that, you know, big art shows like that and get a viewing before the general public and make their buys and in effect, like set the market. You know, if, if an artist is selling, it's a commodity that's yes, value is totally, going up totally. and then they hold it. And then, you know, if they, they may want it because they love the art and they want to keep it hanging on their wall forever, but they may, they may be making a business move and selling it at a profit. And it's just fascinating how, even when it comes to art, something that's usually held out as more pure, um, these guys can can be running an arbitrage on I'm it. so glad you brought that up because I can remember being between seasons one and two at the latest because we were down in that other office. Yeah, when, when you originally probably told me a story about someone doing that in Miami, like you're saying, where you had heard this story and you were like, we got to get that in at some point. And, and that kind of an idea can stay transferred from the, like, so we have a main board down in the writer's room but you and I always keep a board in our office too. And sometimes an idea, a phrase will get transferred from year to year to year on that board or, and it'll just be in like one of our tr- chicken scratches down in a corner of the board and it'll just, and I think that, you know, this whole Art Basel idea, 
Um, and and also, in honesty, the Art Basel thing was a little bit of a, is always a little bit of a fuck you to the single worst note we ever got in our lives. <laughs> well, you're such a fan of development notes from studio execs. I you love them in everybody. general. Yeah. In general, I love them. But once we referenced Art Basel in a script and we got the note back, who is this Art Basel and why is he showing up in the script now? Yeah, he's, page 80 is a little late for him to show up if he's so important. If this Art Basel guy is so important. And of course, Art Basel is this event. And all the person who gave us the note what I had done was stick it in Google if they didn't know. <laughs> Instead, forever, I associate that person with uh, just really being lazy at their job because they didn't, they didn't tell us. So now, now there should be no doubt about, uh, about, even though we've changed it, it's not Art Basel in the show, it's a New York event. Um, all right, so that's the story within the story or something. And I have always wanted to be somebody who got down early on an artist, on, on some paintings, knowing that it was gonna go up and I was gonna flip it for a profit. But I'm 100% sure that I would get stuck with what the art world considered was terrible later. So I only occasionally will buy something if I like it. And I've never sold, resold anything, so I have no idea. Also, even the richest television or screenwriter of all time, probably, can't even the prices we're talking about that are like the low price the guy gets the art at or the woman gets the art at it's just beyond the reach of any screenwriter or television writer or tv yes. director we know that for a fact even the friends and family prices even the friends and family prices you're just like north. oh i can't buy that that's not <laughs> that's not something i can do that's that's happened to me over and over again everybody um lots of times that's way too often um let's so in terms of writing the episode we worked with pretty closely with Ben uh, on coming up with the story. And I think we'll talk to him about what that process was like. I, I think we can skip to the whole idea of shooting the episode, to be honest with you, Dave, because you got to talk a little bit about our history with the great John Dahl. Yeah, the director of this one, John Dahl, who was a director that we have been huge fans of going way back to his first movies. Um, Last Seduction, Red Rock West. I mean, the guy is a master filmmaker. And right at the beginning of our career, we set our sights on him as the person to direct our first movie. And somehow it all came together. He directed Rounders. And not only that, because we were involved in bringing him into the process, he allowed us to be on set for the entire shoot, which was essentially film school for us. And you know, we owe a large part of our career to the fact that we learned how things were made and 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 how to actually make a film to to him. Yeah, 100%. Um, I remember uh, at the end of a lot of Days Arounders asking him questions. I remember the way he talked to us about how you talk to actors. So many of the sort of foundational uh, ideas that we have about how a day on a set should transpire about how scenes should be staged about how you talk to actors about how scenes should be staged so much of that stuff comes from watching john Dahl and from his op openness with us yeah the way the camera should be used where it should be placed the way it shouldn't be used um you know he's a guy who really doesn't go for pointless camera movement just for the sake of moving it around or doing something fancy he always tries to use the camera as another tool in the storytelling. Um, that was a huge thing for us to learn earlier in our career. And then we've had this relationship with him and been friends with him since then. And there's been this weird symbiosis because when we did uh, 
a TV show way back, our first our first TV show, this limited series called Tilt, which happened to be set in the world of poker. Um, back in like 2005, we dragged him in to direct a couple of episodes yeah. and he'd never directed TV before. And, you know, he was a little reluctant at first. And I think he trusted us to not bother him in the way that you hear about horror stories in TV. And, you know, we trusted him so much, we left him alone and he had a great experience because he's a guy who loves shooting and hates the setting up of the deals and the projects part. And that's what TV is great for. And uh, after directing a couple episodes of that show for us, he went on a tear and became one of the most prominent TV directors in the business. Oh yeah, he's directed for all the great shows and you know, over a hundred episodes of television. And in fact, a funny full circle thing was I remember standing around two seasons ago with him on set because he's directed every season of Billions except one. And I remember standing around with him on set and uh, saying to him, hey, 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 John, there was something you said to us on the first movie and I think we might not be doing that right now. And he looked at me and he went, you're right. And he went and reset something up having to do with Dolly versus Steadicam. And it was funny to me because I basically had had a principle that I'd always operated by that came from him. And he had been from just come off a TV show where they did something differently. And I remember reminding him of it. And I, I would say this experience of episode three with John was just spectacular. He, it was an ambitious, this is not an easy episode to shoot. There's a lot going on, varied locations, which means when you go to a new location, you have less time to shoot because you've traveled there. There are scenes with many um, background performers uh, that John had to manage along with our cruise superstar of the episode, our assistant director, Bellamy. Uh, yeah, Bellamy Forrest did an amazing job on this. I think we talked before about just the amount of different hats uh, assistant director has to wear, but it's never, never more sort of clear than when it's an episode when you have to deal with a lot of background performers. And especially when those background performers are like around the age of 16, it's a lot of wrangling. And, you know, it was a long day shooting that scene in the auditorium with all those kids. And she did an amazing job keeping them in line. She, she's a very, very kind person, very nice, but does have the ability to flip a switch and become like a British drill sergeant. Absolutely. at the drop of a hat and does not need a megaphone because she can really project. And there was no way that those kids are going to be messing around on her watch. Yeah. Bellamy, um, is such an excellent person. I mean, she's, she's to me, um, an, an excellent human being and just exceptional at her job. Uh, she cares so much. She really cares real about film, getting it right. A real filmmaker really wants you to be able to nail it. And people don't understand, like our, at some point on this, we will also talk about how uh, Justin Ritz and our other first AD um, uh, does does the job uh, equally well, but differently. But I just want to say that Bellamy, you just always feel like Bellamy is prioritizing this in the same way you are. That 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 to her, getting it in the can uh, at the highest possible level is just incredibly important. She takes it so personally, and I think the crew responds to that. And so you're right. She doesn't need a megaphone. She doesn't need to yell. They just want to uh, help her achieve her vision. And this was, yeah, this was hard because the big art scenes, are, you know, it's not just the boarding school scene. It's the art scene um, also is. A really yes, you have, a, you have a big room with a lot of uh, echo in it and a few hundred people standing around pretending they're at a cocktail party. It's just human nature for those people to start uh, 
acting like it and talking and talking loudly. And she just had to constantly get them back on point. But another thing that I think our listeners probably don't know is that the assistant director, so there's a director and the first assistant director, the first assistant director's job starts when they have to schedule the episode. They have to actually take these scenes apart and then figure out how you're going to, within the days you have to shoot, how that jigsaw puzzle is going to fit together so you can get everything shot. And that requires you to be um, like a logistics manager and an artist and, as you said, a drill sergeant. And Bellamy is um, all of it. And so I love that we get the opportunity to shout her out. Um, Dave, I realize we forgot one thing um, in the story within the story that because which can lead us into talking about uh, some some guest cast. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, I just before we talk about the guy who plays him, I just want to talk about Hard Bob Beaufort because you and I, eleven years ago, twelve years ago, we're sitting in our old office long before billions. And started just riffing to each other about this guy called Hard Bob Beaufort who brooks no bullshit. <laughs> and I, I remember we spent like one whole day just going back and forth answering each other's questions with like, sorry, you know, I'm Hard Bob Beaufort. I brook no I bullshit. Brook no bullshit. Yeah. And I, I think that we had visions of like, you know, a movie that he was going to be at the center of. And, we were going to have a movie you know, that was- started with him behind a desk. Uh, he was an oil think- man. In Texas. Well, you know, and, and you know what? Cowboy boots up on the desk, which we cadged yes! for, for Clancy Brown's U.S. Attorney General. A hundred percent. Yes, that's exactly right. We, we, we did take the boots up on the desk, but he was a Texas oil man. And then someone was going to walk in and start to pitch him. And then he was going to hold up his hand and say, Hey, I'm a hard bought Beaufort. I broke no bullshit. And then last season, we had need for a character who brooked no bullshit. And we had been telling Adam Perlman, actually, about Hard Bob, like the week before. And we had had a character and the thing wasn't quite coming alive in Billions. And then Adam said to us, you know, you guys should consider taking that Hard Bob character. Yeah, he and we said, looked this, at each other. Well, he goes, this sounds a lot like Hard Bob Beaufort. And we were like, <laughs> yes, it does. And then we looked at each other and we're like, well, that whole movie just became a character on Billions. And we just called him Hard Bob Beaufort. And then that's how the guy, so like, there's something, you know, people often ask about how you and I do our thing or what the, the value of this long-term partnership, but legitimately, like, that's just something, it's a perfect example of something we'd had that made us laugh. And people loved Hard Bob's appearance last season. And um, what a joy to get to bring him back. Yeah, when, when, a, when a guest uh, cast member shows up and just like tears into it that, that hard, it's we're automatically thinking about how we can bring the person back, even if they work in a completely different sector or whatever. We're just like, there's got to be a way. And it was fun when uh, when we figured it out and pairing him with uh, the great Danny Strong as uh, Todd Krakow was really just super fun. I mean, they're a great combo on screen in this episode. Yeah, you wonder if people. So Chelsea Ross is who plays, uh, and Chelsea's been. You know, you know him from Hoosiers. You know him from a million things, the last Coen Brothers movie. And Danny Strong, who plays Todd Cracker on our show, if, if you watch a lot of TV, you know him from varied TV appearances. But what you might not know is he is one of the most important and successful screenwriters and TV writers in all of Hollywood. Um, he created Empire along with Lee. He's uh, an executive producer of Empire. He, he wrote um, two of the Hunger Games movies, uh, 
and uh, the butler and is just uh, a giant in the business. And um, we love whenever he'll come and play and hang out on our show. Any other guest cast you want to single out, Dave? Well, yeah, we knew that we needed a, a really strong actor to play this headmaster who was going to be such a an obstacle for acts in this episode. And it was not easy to find. And finally, I, I think, was it, was it Allison who told us? Or maybe it was an internal idea. Maybe you were like, you know who we should get? And uh, we got JC McKenzie to come do it, who's a guy who's worked with Scorsese over and over. He was in The Irishman most recently, Wolf of Wall Street, going back to The Aviator. I think I might've just seen, I'm pretty sure. I was you might've just seen The Irishman. I was yeah. watching The Irishman and I just sent you a text and I was like, we gotta get this guy to play this part. And then we called Allison and asked if it was possible. And yeah. we were so excited that he was willing to come do this thing. And he was great. And he was, it was great the way that he carried the sort of principles of the institution so earnestly, like he didn't protect himself as an actor at all because, you know, even though he, he knew that like his character was not going to prevail, like an instinct that an actor could yeah. have in that situation yeah. is, well, I don't want to look foolish. So I'll, I'll give a wink to the idea that I uphold these, these ideals, but he just went for it. He committed so hard. And then, you know, this takes us back to John Dahl. He's got such a mordant sense of humor. Like all of the terrible parenting in the episode, John Dahl just found hilarious. <laughs> and another moment that he found hilarious was when we cut to, to JC's character sitting in the audience, watching Axe give this speech that basically betrays every belief the guy holds dear. And he, he watches this crowd of kids cheering for it after he spent years trying to teach them better. And... <laughs> And, you know, he just makes this face like he's miserable. And John Dahl just started laughing behind the camera going, look at him, look at him just squirming there. He's just miserable. It's just so terrible. I love it. It was so fun. Uh, you know what this is making me remember, David? As as much as, yes, the sort of highfalutin, uh, the palace thief by Ethan Kanan was an inspiration. I mean, you and I have always loved and repeated to each other that line from Back to School when <laughs> Ned uh, Beatty says... Uh, it was a, it was a really big check when he <laughs> says he's going to kick. He says, he's no, it's, it's, it's to the really stuck up professor. When he's firing the Kellerman. professor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When he's, and, and, and he's like, you fell for Thornton Mellon's bullshit or whatever. And, and how, how big was the check? And Ned Page says, it was uh, it was a really big check. It's like the first headmaster we ever saw just roll over for the money. I mean, how many times have you and I made that joke to you? Yeah. Other? Well, I get, so this episode is our take on, on back to school, I guess. You cross, I mean, <laughs> if you cross the palace thief with back to school, you might have our career. And thrown I mean, some that, Godfather and we're there. I think that's like the whole, I think that's like maybe the whole thing. But before we jump off too far, there's, there's another guest cast member. A very important guest cast member. Super yes. impactful. So we, we got to talk about him for a while. This is an actor that we've wanted to work with for years. Um, you know, it might at first not have seemed like the most obvious piece of casting, but we knew when it was time to inhabit Nico Tanner, this incredible unsung painter, you know, have somebody play him. We realized that we didn't want him to be some sort of foppish artist flipping paint around and talking about art yes. in highfalutin terms. We wanted it to be like a real sort of, uh, 
masculine painter from the Jackson Pollock School. An old his, idea of masculinity. Yeah, yeah. He took old. his job very seriously and believed deeply in what he was doing and didn't need to, to talk about it in fancy terms, but was sort of somebody who was incorruptible and unbiable. And um, we realized the guy who brought this kind of power was the great Frank Grillo. Yeah, what a joy to get to work with Grillo, man. He, um, we've, he's, a, he's a person, we've studied his work. We've uh, long thought we wanted to work with him. And I remember getting on the phone with him and, you know, he's a guy who's become a huge action star, but we got on the phone with him we, and, and, and he said, I'm, I'm game. Just, am I gonna have to beat anybody up? And, <laughs> and we were like, no, we, this is one where we really don't want you to beat anybody up. And he's like, I'd love it. Let's, let's rock and roll. And, um, I think to me, he's, he brought exactly the energy that we were looking yeah, for. I don't want to no, say the, too much about where it goes. But the great thing about Frank is like, um, he, he's a very, you know, like on the outside, very tough guy. But uh, he has a complete understanding of the artist's soul because that's what he is at heart. He's a great actor with incredible dexterity and range, verbal talents. So he was able to inhabit all of the all the deeper aspects of this artist character. It was it was you know exactly what we were looking for. So it was great to have him jump into this episode. Dave, I think I see Mesrick knocking on the Zoom room, so we should probably uh, just talk references real quickly before we welcome him in, unless there's anything else you feel like we got to get to. No, let's rip the references, man. There's a lot of them. We can hit I them mean, quick. I, the one I care the most about, obviously, is Flamingo Kid, because it is uh, that is truly a touchstone film for us. If anyone hasn't seen, I, I just, if anyone hasn't seen the Flamingo Kid, the Gary Marshall movie starring Matt Dillon and Richard Crenna, Richard Crenna, who's in two of our favorite movies of all time, and Janet and, Jones. And Hector Elizondo. Well, and Hector Elizondo in, I mean, th it's really obvious what most of our influences are, but Flamingo Kid is a hidden influence on us, Dave. That is a huge, huge influence on us. I went back, I've gone back to that movie the last few years. I mean, it's about cards, gambling, living above your neat means, the clash of uh, culture clash between rich people and working class people, uh, the way that certain rich people will lie and self-mythologize. I mean, it is- yeah. uh, There's even I, a swing out to Yonkers, I think. I, there is. We like went to school on that fucking movie, man. <laughs> I mean, a lot of our movies and TV is influenced by Flamingo Kid, and I'm so glad we got to shout out- And also, and also I'd movie. say uh, our, our uh, work ethic, because- you know, we've always taken seriously the idea that if you cut a joint, it should stay. Absolutely. If you cut a joint, it should stay. That is one of those things where, uh, um, man, I was so happy that we just got that in. What are some of the other references you want to highlight? Well, I mean, the Cat Stevens song, Father and Son, just right off the top. We didn't try <laughs> to hide this one too much. Uh, let's see, we got not one, but two Godfather references. We got the prize equine thing, the I'm no band leader. Lots of fun. We have an incredible rainbow t-shirt paired with a great rainbow song. Yeah, getting some Richie Blackmore and Ronnie James Dio in the show felt like something that had to happen around season five. And then there's a visit in oh, this yeah, episode gotta talk about it. to the incredible Una Pizza Napolitana and the great pizzaiole Anthony Mangieri, who's become Axe's new pizza man now that Bruno's retired to Florida. And I mean, I can't wait until the restaurants open back up in New York because one of the first places I'm going is Una Pizza Napolitana. I Me mean, too. what an incredible pie. 
I wish it was easy to get it frozen into my house. I'll tell you that. And, and I'll say something, you know, because it is, I agree. I'm not eating pizza right now. You know, I've lost a lot of weight, but that's the first pizza I'll eat when I'm able to uh, unleash the pizza monster, my carnivorous pizza monster. Uh, <laughs> again, because he does put pepperonis on there now. So you can be a carnivorous uh, pizza monster. But also the song playing, I just want to shout out to my old music business days and music business buddies. Because there was no band that everyone was sure was going to be huge more than Daniel Ray produced Circus of Power. And we got Motor in there. They did Somehow, they didn't end up becoming a huge band. But you know what? Motor still rocks. Really good. Uh, I was never involved with that band or anything, but I remember going to see them. And I just remember the conventional wisdom was they were going to be the biggest band in the world. That didn't happen, but that song, I'm glad we got to salute it. All right, dude, we got to let Ben Mesrick in here. And uh, I'm so excited to get to talk to Ben. And um, all right, we'll see everybody on the on the other side of that. Hey, Dave. I mean, I, I got to say, I'm still, every time we talk about our special guest, I still can't believe this guy gave us his time and came and actually spent all this time in the writer's room with us. Best-selling writer. Uh, I think they called you like a trend starter or spotter on television the other day. I just know you by your gym teacher's nickname, Mezzi, the great <laughs> Ben Mesrick. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This is awesome. This is like being back in the writer's room, right? Absolutely. Well, welcome to Behind the Billions, Ben. Great to see you. Great to <laughs> see your face again. This is so yeah. fun. It's it's always it's always fun when Ben's in the room. That was sort of the <laughs> hallmark of the experience. My madness, my own personal delusion. I get to lay it on you guys. <laughs> just a buoyancy. Pieces. It was just a buoyancy and a very sort of uh, eclectic set of ideas you know, and references. This could only be more perfect if I had a big Lenwich turkey sandwich with me. Um, but oh, yes, I, I had so the only guy in the world today. who wants a Lenwich sponsorship. Listen, well, I was enjoying <laughs> what New York has to offer, which is Lenwich. Yeah. And uh, I think there's an Aubon Pen there too. It was really nice. Yes. Nice yeah. Food. All the specials specifically in New York things like Aubon <laughs> Pen. Absolutely. Right. So Ben lives in Boston and our writer's room for season five was in Manhattan. And Ben came down for like three or four days a week, um, yeah. stayed in the city and came in in person um, for what was it, like eight weeks or 10 weeks? It was like nine time. weeks. Yeah. yeah. Nine you weeks. made a big commitment. You know, we've, since the pandemic's happened, we've moved to like Zoom writer's rooms to finish yeah. the season and everything's happening remote. I'm just curious as if you wish that would have happened beforehand <laughs> to save you the time on, on the Excella or-, or if you were glad to be there in person. So when, it, when Brian, Brian had initially reached out to me and I had never been in a writer's room before, I'd never written for TV before, but I obsessively watched the show Billions as one of the few shows that I would watch obsessively. And so I was like, this sounds fantastic. And you were like, you, you got to be in a room with people. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even wear pants. Like I'm not wearing <laughs> pants right now. I've never worked with people in my life because I sold my first book when I was 24 so I'd never actually been in an office environment before, but I, I had a blast, you know, like all eating lunch at a table together. Like it was so cool. I didn't know whether you had to raise your hand to go to the bathroom or anything. I didn't understand the dynamics of an office, but it was a great experience. Also, I mean, I, I mean for someone who wears pajamas most days, I got to say, I mean, you were the snazziest dresser in the room by far. Not well, even knowing. Yeah. Well, I have the clothes somewhere because sometimes I do have to go outside. But, uh, but in general, no, I, I don't usually leave like one room of my house. So it was a great, it was wild. I loved it. But, you know, being around, it was like a college seminar. Like I, I, 
being at Billions, I mean, I don't know if people, I guess your listeners know, but it's a totally different environment than you would expect, I think. I mean, you have really top smart people coming in, giving seminars on the stuff you're writing about. And uh, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't imagine a more like perfect writing experience, at least to me anyways. Thanks, man. No, I, I, um, I was thinking about, you know, when you and I did, you were on my podcast the moment and we, we did the whole thing about your life. And I think people listening to this are really fascinated by the way the specific stories of not just the stories, but sort of like how a television show is created. So how was it different or the same from what you picture? Cause obviously you're this incredibly successful novelist. You've also, you're not, not novelist. I mean, you're our novelist too, but you're a, a nonfiction writer primarily, or that's been your biggest success. But you've had these movies made from your books, so you've been on sets before. But how right. how how was the actual way the sausage is made different from the way you anticipated the sausage being made? Yeah, so one of the big differences, at least for me, having worked on on movies, was even though everyone says that movies are this collaborative effort, the writing isn't. You know, for me, anyways, what I've seen of Aaron Sorkin or the people who develop my movies is they go off in a room and they write the movie. And then they come back and then it gets collaborative. And what was very different for this was, you know, the planning, the strategizing, the putting up a board on the wall and breaking down storylines for every single character before a word was written. Unless you guys had written secret things that I didn't know about, which maybe happened. It, it, you didn't start the writing until it was already this collaboration, which was really intriguing to me. Like I had thought, not knowing anything about writer's room, that you show up on day one and you guys would say, okay, this is what you're writing. Go write this and then we'll talk about it. But that's not at all how it works. Um, maybe it was different in different rooms. I have no idea. But I, 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 would, I love that process of spending all this time developing it all before it. then you had people break off and write. Um, so that was, it's, movies are not in any way as collaborative as this. I guess they become collaborative. Um, but you know, that was intriguing to me. Um, and, and it makes sense when you think about it, you guys know these characters so well and someone like me coming into the room, I don't know anything when I start. Um, so you need all that time to figure it out. But um, I thought that process was really cool. Yeah, and that, well, I was thinking, like I, I do know, yeah, at the beginning of the writer's room, Dave and I definitely went in and we told everybody what we thought the very end of the season was, meaning the very end, which we're not gonna right. talk about now. And we knew um, we knew about the, the the wedding and the ayahuasca. Those are the only things Dave and I, at the right, we had the very beginning and the very end kind of. Um, and then, by the way, your friend, Ben, who we all went to dinner with, he was very happy about the way certain things he told us showed up in episode one. Oh, is that right? That's good. Yeah, <laughs> he, loved, he loved that stuff. Um, he thought that stuff Fantastic. was- Yeah, what, I mean, what, it really, the two episodes that have been on the air have been amazing and the response has been incredible. The crypto world is very excited. <laughs> They're all well, going nuts. But um, you well, know, also tonight, yeah, tonight's episode, of course, is uh, uh, your episode that that you wrote. And and I was also thinking that speech that Axe gives, the first version of that, you actually wrote before there was an episode three. Do you remember how that yes, came I would, about? Tell yes, the story. Yes, I do remember. We had a guest in um, who uh, who gave a talk. <laughs> I don't. I don't. So the guest who came in was very smart who gave a talk that was, um, this was a response to that. And no, explain I was it. Thinking, just don't say the guest name, but yeah. tell the story. Tell so, the story. So what, yeah, so what, he what was, Ben he is was, talking about is sometimes we have um, people from the world of finance, influential people, also from the world of um, law and prosecution who come in. But in this case, um, 
a person came in very successful, but had sort of, um, would you say like anti-capitalist approach? Yes. Like- he basically is coming in with a very anti-capitalist, uh, it, it's, it's very virtuous, I think you would say, way of looking at how bad capitalism is and how we need to find a new structure to, to make this world a happier place and, and all these ideas of, you know, basic uh, income for every, all of the, these different ideas, which, which all are really great and, you know, sound good and, and a lot of people probably embrace them. I think but, you were relating heavily to Bobby Axelrod at this point. Right, though, because, because I was listening to so this much guy time talk thinking, yeah, and I was trying him. to get inside who this guy really is and what he really thinks. And I had my Bobby Axelrod head on because that's who we're, you know, writing about. And and I agree with a lot of what Axelrod thinks as well. And so my response was was probably not one that um, a lot of people may agree with. But my response was, no, no, like, you know, greed is good. And the whole sort of uh, response to that, the way Axe would respond to it. But that was my visceral response to it, too. Uh, as someone who loves capitalism. Well, the next day you came in and you said, I think here- Well, Brian, I, you I, said, I, you were like, go write that down. I want you to write down what you're thinking and actually say it. And well, so that's I an interesting thing about I, a writer's room, right? So yes, I turned to you and I said, write down how Bobby Axelrod would say all that shit. Go right, ahead and, and do it. And that's exactly, you, yeah. He came in and read it off his phone, I think. <laughs> I did. I wrote it on my it phone, phone in yeah. this furious anger while sitting at Lenwich eating a sandwich. And I showed up the next day and I was like, I'm going to read this screed. And uh, I don't know if everybody in the room loved it or not, but I knew that this is how I would respond to that if I were asked. But also, you know, I felt it was a relevant response. And uh, I loved writing. Like, that was one of the favorite things that I wrote because it was just so fun to come from that voice. And obviously, I went farther with acts than I myself would well, necessarily Well, believe. that's what I was excited. But then that wasn't even originally. I remember we liked that speech so much, Dave, that we were all trying to figure out, well, how do we get that in Masaryk's episode? Right. Mm-hmm. How do we structure Mesrick's episode to let then, that yeah, speech land? And beyond that, it was like, how do we take this and how will this play for maximum effect? Who's the perfect audience for this? You know, if he's talking to hardened business people or something, it's not going to be as impactful. But when we figured out that we could engineer it so that he was talking to an audience full of like prep school kids who yeah. were in a, in a malleable moment, it would be you know, super fun. Uh, and anyway, he ate yeah. that stage up too. When he was up there doing it and you guys, let, I mean, I was on set watching when he did that. It's just, you get goosebumps watching him say those lines. It's so amazing. And as a book writer, you never get that feeling. You never get to watch somebody read your writing um, or else you're creepy, you know, basically. But like the idea of someone taking what you've written and then doing it in front of cameras it's just really cool to watch. And I, and, and, um, yeah, that was awesome. It was awesome. And, and yeah, you're, you also sort of alluded to something that's important, which is that the stuff that we all write in the room, when we take on the voices of these characters, you have to believe it in the moment when you're writing it, it has to be coming from like a place that's, that's very, um, committed, but, but you don't have to, as a person, really espouse all the beliefs. I mean, it would be right. weird if everybody was on these polls taking these beliefs. You just have to believe it in the moment you're writing it, seeing it from the point of view, and then it has to be interesting. And then that's the debate that's in the show. Right, right. And I'm sure, but you guys probably get a lot of sort of people who assume that's what you think, <laughs> you know, or that's what you believe, especially because you write these characters so real. But, you know, obviously I know you guys you're not Axe. <laughs> You're not Axe. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I mean, in my politics, if you 
follow me online. Yeah, you you're the politics. opposite of that. I'm, I'm certainly don't agree with Axis Greed at the end, but it doesn't matter. I agree 100% with what Levine and you were saying, which is when I'm writing Bobby Axelrod, I 100% am not judging what he's saying. I'm trying to actually mind meld with what that character would be saying and with Mike Prince and with Chuck Rhodes, right? And with yeah. uh, every one of those, with 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 Wendy Rhodes, uh, with yeah. Taylor Mason. I mean, that's yeah. kind of what you have to do. I will say one of the, my faults as a writer, and I get attacked by reviewers a lot, is that I fall in love with my characters. And I write a guy like Axe. If I were you and had written Axe for the years that you've written Axe, I would be becoming Bobby Axelrod. Because I do fall, when I write about the Winklevoss twins, I want to be a Winklevoss twin. And when I wrote about like you know any of my books, I, I, I do become their best friend. And so for me, it actually does meld into my personality, into my life. So That's while writing that scene for Bobby Axelrod, I didn't just believe it in the moment. <laughs> it, it sort of does inform me a little bit. And and and, um, and I mean I, that um, that could become a problem in a nonfiction atmosphere. <laughs> but our show is fictional, and then something that you'll find is the more the more persuasive one of these characters tries to be, the the more the show can 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 present how that point of view might be undercut. Like there's something about protesting that much that suddenly shows the other side. And then that's what the audience can often take away. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, 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 it's neat having characters that are so um, vicious in a way that they're so over the top that a, a normal person on average could never say what Axe does or what Chuck Sr. says, or, or even Chuck for that matter there, they take it all to that extreme um, but for me, it's just so attractive when someone like, I get why Fox news is so popular. <laughs> I get it because there's <laughs> something so attractive about being that monster in that moment. Um, and, uh, and you know, the whole charisma of a character like that, um, it, it affects me when I'm writing it. Did, uh, and, and, and normally when you become an expert on a subject matter and you write your book, you're able to kind of move on. With this crypto thing, obviously, this expertise that you have, you had you had to keep becoming even more expert in it because you had to kind of teach it to us. And 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 is that that's not normally a part of what you go through, right? No, I mean, usually, you know, you for most things, anyways, you write a book and then you move on to the next book. Um, so you're sort of, you know, you dive into that world for a little while and then you dive into the next world. Um, crypto is a little different because. I've, I've been following the Winklevoss twins for a long time, you know, and when I wrote that book, I knew nothing about Bitcoin. And then I got really into the idea of Bitcoin. I don't own any Bitcoin, which, you know, is you want to do the financial disclaimer. Yeah, I don't. I never have. I, ben Mesrick does not or never has held Bitcoin and is not right. advertising for it or advocating. Right. Just to be clear, no one in the writer's room believes Ben on this point. I just want to no, say I really don't. nobody believes him. Well, that's so, the beauty of crypto. You don't know who owns it. My whole career has been spent watching other people get really, really rich and writing about it and yet not owning any of it. I was on Facebook in 2007 and didn't get a penny from Facebook. And I wrote about Bitcoin. And I don't own Bitcoin. any LaCroix. I don't have any LaCroix in my house. <laughs> exactly. But the, the Bitcoin As thing, I'm downing um, LaCroix. I am fascinated by it. And when, when you had me, I mean, I think we kind of met over Bitcoin in a way. I mean, you, I've known of you guys forever and, and, you know, rounders and I did 21, but rounders was the seminal card and movie of, of all time. Um, so I've always followed you guys, but never known you until this Bitcoin thing. 
which is kind of an interesting way we met. I wrote Bitcoin Billionaires and we had a conversation about that and, and then into billions. But so I was I knew that I think that crypto is something that makes sense, obviously, because people like Axe are, are not going to be avoiding that world. You know, it's, it's going to be around them all the time right now. So it made sense. So I have become an expert on crypto, um, similarly to how I became an expert on Facebook previously or whatever. Um, sometimes these stories have legs that you just have to continue with for forever. <laughs> I, I have a, a question for you, Ben. Um, one thing you talk about, and you talked about on my pod, and you've talked about interviews, and you told the two of us the first time we spoke, was, you know, you when you write your books, you write your book, you basically don't really rewrite, and you don't really deal with a notes process. So here, it's a process of like, you write, you get questions and comments from us, you write more, there's more, you outline. What was, uh, you stayed incredibly positive through it. You kept doing the work, you were, made it better every time, you, it was really a perfect kind of process in that way. But I'm, I'm wondering from your side of it, if the, how you, what did you do to flip? People always want to understand how people take critique, criticism, or, or notes. Right. How did you process all that since it's so not what your normal process is? Yeah. So yes, normally I, I'm one of those people for better or for worse. I write a book, I hand it and I never look at it again. The editor will call me up and say, I want to change this. I'm like, go ahead, do what you need to do. I'm pretty much done. And it's very different in the world you guys are in. There's drafts. Like I remember the first day you gave me, or not the first day I started writing my episode, you give me this stack of note cards. I'm like, what are these? <laughs> like, what do you do with these? <laughs> and I had to talk to you. I talked to Adam. I was like, so what do you write on these? <laughs> He's like, you break down the seeds and then you line them up. And I'm like, what, what's going on here? Like, I didn't know anything about that stuff. And then you, you line up the cards and then we talk about the cards and then you reline up the cards. And then you talk, but this is a totally different process than how I would write my book, obviously. And then there are drafts and there are, then there's writer room talking about it. And then you guys, and, and so, you know, for me, first of all, I'm not one of those people who's, who has a problem with criticism. Like I totally get if I'm going to hand something in and someone doesn't like something, I'm, I'm never, there's no, I have none of that negative ever. I've always positive optimistic and I love everything. And you guys know these characters so well. And also your dialogue is so strong that if you had, you know, something that didn't work, then I knew it wasn't right, you know? So it wasn't like some random executive somewhere was calling me up and saying, this, this doesn't work. It was the guys who create this show are saying, this doesn't work. And that's a big difference. I mean, the credibility factor is enormous. But really, I like the process. I, I, I went into this thinking I'm going to learn because for me, I've never done TV before, but TV is obviously the future of content. This is the golden age of these streamers um, and all of the, and even it's going to be even more so after all this craziness, I think. This is where everyone's going to watch everything. So if I want to learn how to tell stories, what's better than learning from the masters of this? So that's how I went into the process from the beginning. But I loved it. I mean, it, I really think it got better and better and better. And that's not something I would necessarily say if some random Hollywood executive was saying, change this or change that. Um, the other thing is, and I remember this, this goes back to that, but when I first started in the room, one of the things you said was, don't try and do anything with music or food, <laughs> because those are two things that I know, and you're not going to put those in. And I felt the same way about a lot of the things you were changing, because there, it's not just music and food, but it's like certain aspects of dialogue, like comedy, 
like the funny things, you know, you know how those guys talk to each other, the references to movies and stuff like that. I mean, it, you almost need to bring along Google with you for every conversation because it's an encyclopedic knowledge of movies that you put into every single scene um, that I could never pull off. You know, I don't know the movie world like you guys know the movie world. So it really just got better and better and better. Yeah, the drafts did get better. And then when you watched the episode, what did that feel like when you finally saw like the I mean, it was episode. unbelievable. I watched it with my wife, Tanya. Tanya and I watched it and it was like, wow. Like some of the some of it is just like, you know, it's incredible. The, the opening scene for me is my favorite, one of the favorite things that I've done. Um, it, it's a quick scene. It's not a long scene. Um, and it's a kid, right? You know, and kids, you never know how a kid's going to do. But it's so strong. It's like watching, you know, a, a movie, like The Social Network or a John Hughes movie. It's like a, it's a great, that opening minute to me is really great. And then the acts speech, you know, to me. Well, yeah, these are things you came in with. I mean, these are things that were your, you know, this whole idea of the yeah. crypto farm and then carrying it forth from the first episode to this episode and the way it, it, it you know, yeah. it, it manifests that stuff came from yeah, your I ideas. Loved it. I definitely felt, and I don't know if you guys feel like this, when I watch that this episode feels different um, in an interesting way to me. And I don't know if it's pacing, it's the setting, it's where they are, but I, I love that. It felt almost like in, in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't know, we'll see what people think of it. Well, no, but it's it also because it's about acts as a father too, right? right. So, Which we haven't seen in the show really in a while. Right, it's those ramifications. So that, and that power stuff that, look, you're always fascinated, it seems to me, in your work. It's so good that that kid got better and better and better because you never know what's going to happen with a kid actor, oh, right? Yes. He's great. Jack Gore is amazing. But when, when it's funny, even though it's true what you say that it's this group project that Dave and I are like the arbiters of the tone and the voice of the show, yet things you're fascinated by as the writer of the episode, stuff that's thematically in all of your work, the power of an organization versus the individual, the sort of maverick figure, um, this idea of what is, um, the, the idea of, of, of the way in which capitalism, the questions about capitalism are formed. It's the stuff that you've been writing about in many of your books, and that's all in the episode. It's in there. So your voice got through, you know? Yeah, the themes that I'm obsessed with, and also the father and son thing in a weird way, That's that's been in a lot of my books and stories is like, the kid who's, you know, going against authority. Like these are themes that I always deal with in my books, whether it's subconsciously or consciously. Um, so yeah, it's definitely been a been, you know, I felt like that episode feels like something I would write, which is kind of cool because you go into a show and I'm not sure that would be the same in every writer's room. Like I'm not sure you could have walked into the West Wing and have it feel like a non, you know, a little bit different. I, 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 I don't know what other writers' rooms are like, but it was an incredible, for me, an incredible experience from beginning to end. And the fact that I got to get a little bit of my voice into an episode, I mean, it's unbelievable to me. Because also, as such a huge fan of Billions, as I know anybody who's, who's listening to this is, it's like, it's like when that guy, was it Journey, where that random fan becomes the lead singer? I mean- Ariel Pineda, a, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, see, there you go. See, my music knowledge, my tiny music knowledge. It's like suddenly, Arnell, Arnell Pineda. I did not Google you guys see it's Arnell Pineda. Yes, <laughs> it's joining this massive, this incredible thing in, in progress already, which is really, you know, still getting to have a word in there is, is unbelievable. I, I just, it was great. It was really good. Great. Yeah. Dave, do you have anything else for Mezzi before we let him go? By the way, Mezzi is not really his nickname. Don't, don't, I think I'm the only person who's kind of allowed to call him that. 
Yeah, Mazzy, my baseball. Did I tell that baseball story on our last podcast? I don't know if I did. No, just in the you've well, told you, it in the right. You told room. it in it's the enough. room and it's stuck. And and for us, you'll <laughs> always be Mezzy. I will always be Mezzy. I was a, a little league baseball in Florida where they take and I'm a horrible athlete in every way. I've never hit or or caught a ball thrown in my direction. And I was I was I hated it. I was miserable. And I said to my mom, I want to quit. I need to quit. And she goes, You can quit, but you have to do it yourself. So I called up this Southern coach, like serious baseball guy. And I'm like, you know, coach, I, I really, I want to, I want to quit. And he goes, Mezzy, are you going to be a quitter all your life? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's, that's okay. And I hung up and I was, felt so good. I had quit and I was going to be a quitter my whole life. But that's, uh, that's the message. Well, story. you did not quit on us, Mezzy. You came through. Thank you so much, dude. It's so great to have you here on Behind the Billions. People can find Ben Mezrick on Twitter and on Instagram and uh, his, Mezzi, tell us about, quickly, before we go, in case people want to know, tell us about the Charles Dickinsonian thing you're doing right now. Yeah, crazy. So the Boston Globe is publishing a serialized novel by me, um, a couple chapters every day. It runs on the cover of the newspaper and in online at bostonglobe.com. It's a Da Vinci Code style thriller set in and around Boston. It's very, been an amazing experience, huge response. So you can go on bostonglobe.com and read the whole thing there. And it was like an old Dickens kind of project, a serialized novel in a newspaper. Great cool. opportunity. Yeah. Amazing. We'll talk to you Great soon, talking man. Thanks to you. for everything. Thank you, guys. Awesome time. All right. So that was the great Ben Mesrick, everybody. And uh, we hope you like this episode of Behind the Billions. We will be back next week after episode four with another awesome special guest. Keep telling us what you think of this or what you want to know on Twitter. I'm there at Brian Koppelman. He's there. You're just at David Levine, L-E-V-I-E-N, right? That is correct. You're still spelling it that way. You're you're holding firm to the L-E-V-I-E-N spelling. I have to stick with it at this point. I'm committed. All right, Dave's pod committed. Okay, everybody, we'll see you next time.